morning, we are going to be looking at what is the mission of the church? What is your mission as a Christian in the church? As we've been studying the good fight, the fight that Paul talked about, when Paul said, I finished the race, I fought the good fight, and there's a crown laid up for him in heaven. We've been studying the good fight, and we have spent six weeks really looking at the reality that most of the battle, spiritual battle, that takes place inside of us. And how do you overcome that feeling of guilt and shame? And how do we, how do we deal with our sins? How do we deal with the sin nature? How has God empowered us as believers to live victoriously in this life? Last week, we looked at God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all of his sons and daughters to empower us to be witnesses and, and, and to witness with impact, to have lives that impact the world that we live in. This week, I want to look at what is our mission. So God has saved us, he's redeemed us, he's equipped us, he's made everything possible for us to be in right standing with him. So why didn't he just call us home? Like, why don't we just go to heaven? Well, the answer is, we have a mission here on earth. There is a purpose for God's church here on earth. And what I want to do this morning is clarify what is that mission. See, if you don't know the mission... You'll find yourself diverted to the right, diverted to the left. I've heard the term used, and I think it's fitting, that if we're not careful, we'll end up spending our life chasing mice while lions devour the land. As a pastor, I've been very frustrated with this in the last two years. I've watched what, in my opinion, is God's people become completely deterred to the left and the right, chasing mice. When there are greater battles to fight, we have to know the mission. And if you don't know the mission, it's easy to get distracted. I've watched us become so concerned about things that ultimately have no eternal bearing whatsoever. And we'll get passionate about them and we'll fight about them and we'll divide over them and we'll live anxious about them. And in the end, it has nothing to do with anything eternal. And so I want to define what is our mission this morning. And I want to look at it through three overall objectives. Like there's three main things that I believe must be part of every Christian's mission. The first one this morning, the first objective of our God-given mission is that we need to be preaching against the wickedness of the culture. Preaching against the wickedness of the culture. I want us to look at this from the perspective of John the Baptist. I want us to look at it from the perspective of Jesus and his preaching. I want to briefly talk about the disciples and the prophets of old and then our responsibility as the church. 
So let's look at John the Baptist first. You're going to find that John preached to the culture of his day. Look at Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 14, and let's take a look at John's preaching. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. A couple things about John's preaching. Number one, notice he preached to all the region. John had crowds. Jesus had crowds. The disciples had crowds. The the prophets of old had crowds. People that would show up to hear them preach. And I want to submit that we should have crowds. The church. We should have crowds of people that we're preaching to. An incredible amount of ministry happens in one-on-one and in small group ministry. But we should be addressing the culture of our day publicly to crowds. The reason these guys had crowds is because their ministries were successful. We looked at this last week when we looked at the empowering of the Holy Spirit to allow us to witness with impact. And brothers and sisters, when we as God's sons and daughters are walking in the authority that he has given us, when God's preachers are preaching with authority, that's what Jesus, he preached with authority, the people like they hadn't heard anything like him before. John, when you hear the things John says, this is coming from a place of authority. I mean, who says this to people? Somebody that has absolute uh, a sense of authority. God has given me the right to proclaim truth to people who need to hear truth. And he preached it with boldness. He preached it with, with clarity. There's no confusing what John is saying. The crowd shows up and he preaches to the culture. Notice that he wasn't impressed by the crowds. Jesus never was either. The crowd shows up and John's not like posting on Facebook. Oh, I got an extra 500 followers today. John looks at the crowd and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
It's very different than the type of preaching we are accustomed to today. And this week, as I was studying this portion of this sermon that I'm going to be in for the next 20 minutes, I was convicted. I know that I do preach pretty strong compared to the average American pastor. John was beheaded. Jesus was crucified, and Jesus only preached for three years. Like, let that sink in. Three years of preaching, and he had made people so mad that the religious group and the Roman Gentiles all agreed, let's put him to death. I can assure you, the strength of Jesus' preaching makes me look like a soft Disneyland preacher. And I was convicted of it over this week. One of our primary missions is to cry out against the wickedness of the culture. Notice that John addressed him directly. He addressed the whole crowd. Then he addresses the uh, tax collectors. He addresses the soldiers. When necessary, he addresses the Pharisees. And ultimately, John was beheaded for addressing Herod specifically as an individual. So Herod was like a high-level, ranking Roman official. And John is preaching against Herod's adulterous relationship. Herod had taken his own brother's wife. Herod's brother's name was Philip. And Herod had taken Philip's wife to himself, had an affair with her. John is like, hey, that's an adulterous relationship. That is a sin against God Almighty. And so they arrest him and ultimately behead him, cut his head off for calling out an elect, well, I wasn't elected, calling out an official for sin. And I want you to note something. Herod wasn't a Christian, folks. Herod wasn't a Jew. Herod was a Gentile leader that John had enough integrity to call out sin. Because listen, sin is sin. Wickedness is wickedness, no matter who's doing it. It is not just our job to call out sin amongst ourselves. It is our job to proclaim to a lost and dying world what sin is so that they might flee the wrath that is to come. John was really straight. It was clear what he was preaching. Next, let's look at Jesus. Here we're going to see Jesus' first sermon. Luke 4, verses 17 through 30. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years, or three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is Jesus' first message. And he says what he needs to say, and the people don't really understand him. They're just kind of marveling, like, wow, what amazing words. And he basically says, hold on, you didn't get it, so I'm going to make it real clear. Not only do you not get it now, but you're not going to get it in the future. And just like Elijah had to go somewhere else, some other widow of Zarephath, to be heard, and just like Naaman was the only person healed in that day and all of Israel was not, so will it be with you. The same way they rejected Elijah, the same way Israel rejected Elisha, the same way Israel rejected the prophets of old, that's what you're going to do to me. And notice it says they were filled with wrath. This is the type of Jesus most modern-day Christians refuse to, to even believe existed. They have some fake, soft, wimpy Jesus who just wants to be your friend if you just let him into your heart, and this is their version of Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus was harsh. And I will say it again, in three years, just three years, I've been preaching for 20 in just three years, Jesus was so hated for what he preached. They killed him. This is so vastly different than what we've become accustomed to. And yet, it is one of the primary missions of the church to cry out against the wickedness of our culture. You know what's interesting when you look at chapter 5 and verse 1, is that while much of the people hated him, there were still crowds. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. Oh, I'm sorry, I was supposed to stop there, verse 1. The whole point is, crowds were still pressing on. A lot of people hated what he had to say, but Jesus spoke with such a sense of authority that people came to hear him. Some of the people in the crowds were there for the purpose of trying to catch him up. 
Not everybody that was there loved what he had to say. Some did. Some hated it. The point is this, that he drew crowds. And when they were there, Jesus preached as straight as it could be to the point that even after his first sermon, they are filled with wrath and they're ready to throw him over the cliff. Think about now the prophets of old. They were the same way. They addressed the culture of their day. In Acts chapter 2, last week we studied that chapter. So if you were part of the sermon series, you'll remember that Peter basically gets up and he addresses the people directly and speaks to them in such a way that it's like, you're the ones who killed Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. We see a sense of boldness where they're unafraid to address the culture of their day. Notice Jesus speaking to his own generation. Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? See, Jesus is like, I'm preaching to you. What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. Then the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus says this entire generation, you're like a bunch of children. That it doesn't matter who God sends to you. He sends one man like John, and you're saying that he's got a demon. He sends one man like me, you're calling him a drunkard and a glutton. No matter who God sends, no matter what they're like, no matter what message they preach, you're like a bunch of children who will not accept God's message. This is what Jesus said. There are some of you right now, you're hearing me say that, and you're like, that's kind of harsh, preacher. Seriously, you know it. There's a part of you that's like, this isn't the Jesus that I know. You might not know Jesus at all. Because this is Jesus. His preaching was harsh. Pointed. Not only does he deal with generations, Jesus calls out entire cities. He gets even more specific. Turn over to Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Let's just do 13 through 15. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. You will be exalted to heaven... No, you shall be brought down to Hades. That's a strong statement, folks. Jesus says, you, you people, Chorizon, Bethsaida, Derby, Rose Hill. He calls out cities by their name and pronounces judgment on the entire city for how they responded to his message. I cannot, it's not possible for me to overstate 
how straightforward these preachers were. Peter was the same way. Everyone's like, what's going on here? This is amazing. Peter says it is. Let me tell you how it happened. Remember when you murdered Jesus? You remember that? We were all there to witness it. You all gathered together and you conspired to murder the Son of God. You remember that? God raised him up from the dead. That's what's happened. That's as bold as bold gets, folks. There was an absolute willingness to call out the wickedness of their culture. And I'm telling you, this is one of our primary responsibilities as a church. We, as a church, should be calling out the wickedness of our culture. Now, here's the reality. I've already said it. What we want to do is chase mice instead of fighting the lions that are destroying the land. We want to pat ourselves on the back because we're going to get all fired up about old mask mandate. Listen, I hate masks. And contrary to the supposed undeniable evidence they work, Joplin Emerson does not actually think they work as well as a lot of people say they do. Let me tell you something. I could give two rips less about this. This has nothing to do with the souls of men. And what happens is, is we get off on all sorts of little different tangents where we get in a little, you know, a tissy fit and we think, well, I'm going to be mad about this. I'm going to be mad about that. I'm going to stake my, this is what I'm fighting for. And we're chasing mice while lions are devouring the land. And there is real wickedness in our culture. And often we look the other way and do nothing about it and chase meaningless fights. And we have got to be focused, brothers and sisters. We have got to be preaching against the wickedness, the sinfulness of our culture. I've been frustrated for two years watching the church want to fight about every little thing. Many of you have wanted me to go on your mouse hunt. Now you know why the answer was no. I don't deny there was a little mouse over there that shouldn't be in the room. The problem is our, abs, our culture is absolutely being ravished right now with sexual impurity, demonic ideas about gender, an all right, outright, completely denial of God's design for men and women. The home is in shambles. There are greater issues. And here's the reality. Everybody wants to be a war hero. It sounds glorious being a martyr, being one of the disciples. We all want to be like Apostle Paul. But when it comes down to it, most of God's people are too much of cowards to stand up and preach against wickedness. And so we want to pat ourselves on the back chasing around a bunch of little mice. And you better believe it, it has driven me nuts for the last couple of years. I have been so disappointed in God's people the last couple of years, the things they want to get all riled up about. 
We have a responsibility to be crying out against the wickedness of our culture. What are some of those things? Obviously, I'm not going to cover them all here in 10 minutes. Obviously. So I'm just going to deal with a few. Number one, sexual perversion. It's probably the most permeating thing that is ruining our culture is sexual perversion. The amount of pornography, I'm going to say it. I know we got sixth grade and up in here, but the, the amount of pornography that is consumed in this culture. Things that once used to be rated X are now like, in some cases, not even rated R. Things that 30 years ago, not only could you have not played it in a theater, you would have had to go to some nasty, gross, wicked store to purchase the content. Now, streaming on Netflix. It's unbelievable. And I'm telling you, sexual perversion has permeated our culture and it's ruining our children. The, 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 the attack on the very core of how God made us, men and women. Just this week, you know, the United States military, at least the Air Force, and I love our military. I really do. But I am so frustrated with the, the, what, the, the woke mob ruling this country. Just this week, that's been in talks for a long time, but just this week, the U.S. Air Force has decided to go ahead and allow gender pronouns to be used as people choose. As stupid as that is, right? So a he could decide he wants to be a she and a she could decide she wants to be a he. Some of the other pronouns they allow are they and them. That's just weird, man. I'm going to refer to you as them. That's just weird. Like, no, you're an individual. You're not several people. It's just nuts. It's, it's like we have taken our brains and thrown them in the trash. And you want to know how we got to this place? Joplin Emerson, at least, believes we got to this place because the church is a bunch of cowards who have become terrified to say anything that's true about this stuff because we don't want to offend anybody. And what's worse is often we blame Jesus for it. We're just trying to be loving. No, you're not. You're just trying to be a coward. Nobody loved these cities more than Jesus did. Nobody. Nobody loved the people of Bethsaida more than Jesus did. He died for those people. Nobody loved people more than Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying, you are going to Hades. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, to be calling against the wickedness of our culture. And this is where nobody really wants to get into the war. Because we all want to be liked. We don't want to be beheaded. We don't want to be crucified. We don't want to, it, it, often, which is, which is hilarious, in the, in the disguise of we trying to, you know, we, we want a crowd to preach to, 
but, but the church isn't winning crowds, folks. I'm telling you, the church is losing. The church is dwindling. The church is losing its influence. It's not gaining more people. It's losing them. We have a responsibility to stand up and preach against the wickedness of our culture. I'm going to sum it up running through the Ten Commandments. That's going to be in Exodus chapter 20. And I'm not going to have you guys follow me back there. I know you've got the text and we did it the first service. It's just going to work better if I just read through it here. If you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. First of all, we see in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. There is nobody but Jehovah as God. There's only one God. Make no mistake about it. We do not worship the same God of the Muslims or any other religion. There is one God. He is the creator of heaven and earth as revealed to us here in the word of God. And you shall have no other gods before him. Nothing can come before God. Not your career. Not your husband, your wife, your children, your parents. Your desire for success. Nothing can come before God. Next, in verses 4 through 6, we see that Uh, We are not to worship any graven image. This is something that specifically here in this culture, we probably don't struggle a lot with. Of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one probably the least likely of anybody actually at home bowing down and worshiping an actual image. We are told not to. Our God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Number three, Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I will never in all the days of my life believe that somebody's a Christian who uses the G. I don't even even like to say the letters. I can't do it. I mean, I am that appalled by it. You can tell me how much you love Jesus and take his father's name in vain. You're a liar. You will never convince Joplin Emerson you are a Christian if you take the Lord's name in vain. It's a, ser- it's just a serious assault against God. Can you imagine if someone used your name as a cuss word? Every time that you were mad or angry, you used my name. Oh, Joplin! That'd be offensive, wouldn't it? I mean, that would, that would make me mad if you used my name as a cuss word to express your anger every time something went wrong. Yet, think about it, brothers and sisters. This, this should have no place in the church of God. No place amongst Christians. Yet in our culture, it has got to be one of the most used words as a cuss word. And it is evil and it is wicked. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. He goes on to say, For in six days the Lord has made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We need to honor a day of rest each week for the Lord. There's a principle here. God says, this is a holy principle to me. I've watched the church denigrate into an hour of of service a week. We show up for church and then boom, we are going to work right afterwards in one way or another. The church has even got to a place where so much of it enjoys just staying at home. They don't even want to put the effort to get up this morning, get your clothes on, and get to church. Yes, those of you that are listening right now live, unless you're sick, you're not where you should be. God created you to be part of the body of Christ. And sitting at home in your pajamas, pretending to be part of this church, you are absolutely deceiving yourself. We have a responsibility to gather and worship. And beyond that responsibility to gather and worship, we have a God-given command to give a day of our week to God. To stop the work. To stop the constant going and the constant motion and rest. Next. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Here we see the principle that we are called to honor those who are above us. And there is nobody who deserves honor more than mother and father. We have watched the absolute, it's, it's, it, is, it is appalling to me. We have watched the absolute rejection of honoring mother and father. It is, it is happening Coast to coast, it's happening all around the world. We're seeing, we're seeing uh, just recently in California, people giving vac- schools giving vaccines to middle school kids and not telling their parents and not getting uh, approval of it. I couldn't even guess. I don't know. I don't know what I would do if you stab a needle into my child without my approval. My, this is my honor, and I mean this sincerely. You probably shouldn't find out. Honestly, if you're going to stab a needle in my child without asking me about it, I might go to jail for whatever I would do. Because I have a God-given right to protect my children. And I will answer to God for how I protect my children. How do we get to a place, though, in a culture? I'm telling you, back when I was in middle school, that never would have happened. Ever. Those, those people would have ended up in prisons, what they would have done. We see teachers' unions telling their teachers not, and, and telling their students, excuse me, not to tell their parents what they're discussing in class. It is because it's wrong. It's what they're teaching is wrong. They know that it's wrong. They know mom and dad will be furious. But what's happened is this. This attitude, this heartbeat has become like, we're, we're one of the most disrespectful, dishonoring people that there ever was now. I watch kids that dishonor their parents. I've, I've watched kids that are violent towards their parents and parents don't do anything about it. 
No respect for mom or dad. And here's the reality. There's nobody that you should respect more than your mom or dad or honor. If we're willing to quit honoring our parents, everything under that we will also dishonor. Police force, people of authority, teachers, security, whatever. And you're seeing it. We're living in this era of time where there is no respect for authority whatsoever. It is an absolute wickedness. It is an abomination to God. It should have no place in the church, but it should also be, we should be calling out against this wickedness in our culture. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Let's go through those quickly. You shall not murder. This is something we got to be calling out against. Murder. That is the taking of an innocent life. One of the ways that we see this happen most in our culture is what, through what we call abortion. It is wrong. It is the ending of an innocent human life. Now, I want to address this for a little bit. I'm going to, I want to address abortion for a little bit. Years ago, I used to go out and I used to do abortion rallies, anti-abortion rallies. And there was a moment, and I was a pretty young Christian at the time, there was a moment I became so appalled and so heartbroken at the way that these protesters treated the women that in my spirit, I could not associate with them. I literally left and never went back. I did not see a love for the child that was being aborted or for the mother or for anybody. What I saw was absolute hatred and bitterness. I'm going to tell you something, a great indicator of the difference between earthly anger, fleshly anger, and righteous anger. Real important note here. Earthly anger, fleshly anger, it breeds bitterness. Godly anger breeds sorrow. That's the difference. If you're bitter about something, nope, it's not the Holy Ghost. It's your flesh. I know you don't want to hear that. And I'm going to tell you, we as people, we will get in the flesh and we'll get bitter. And we know how to spiritualize our bitterness and talk about his righteous anger and what he did was so wrong and what she did was so wrong and I'm just mad about it. Well, maybe you are mad about it. But if you're actually bitter, it's earthly, fleshly anger. And the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not going to do anything. It's going to make matters worse. Godly anger produces sorrow. And I remember being there, and I was actually sorrowful for the ladies. There was awareness like, man, you know, I don't know what they've been through. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I could not even guess what in the world would bring them to this point. I can't imagine what they were thinking driving here. I don't know. And I want to help them, and I do want to see this decision reversed. And I'm looking at people just screaming, murderer! And I'm like, this... I don't know that these people are Christians. I know they say they are, and they think they're the greatest Christians on the planet, but I don't know. And I just can't stand shoulder to shoulder with them anymore. I can't do it. I've got to leave. And I remember walking off and never turning back. We've got to find the balance of calling abortion what it is. It's murder. But here's the reality, and I want to talk to ladies that have maybe had an abortion, maybe have people in your family that have had abortions. I believe this with all of my heart. I really do. 
Maybe I'll get to heaven and find out I'm wrong, but I'm telling you, Joplin Emerson believes what I'm about to tell you. Out of every 10,000 women that have an abortion, it's probably 9,999 that don't see it as murder. And they would have never done it if they saw it that way. They had doctors and people in their life tell them otherwise, talk them into it otherwise, explain to them why this is the right thing to do. And in their own mind and in their own heart, they, they somehow, as we do, we tend to spin our sin and not see it for what it really is. This is one of the reasons that there is such a huge turnaround rate when a woman who's considering an abortion can simply see a sonogram and see her baby's heart beating. It's an absolute game changer. And for those that have, have made such a decision, here's what you need to know. God forgives all of our sins, brothers and sisters. All of them. Including the sin of abortion. Including the sin of murder. Ask David. Ask Paul. Ask Moses. It is not the unforgivable sin. And as we've already discussed in this sermon series, if you deal with the guilt of that, if you're a Christian, you deal with the guilt of a past sin, you have to trust the blood of Jesus. You must trust the blood of Jesus. You're never going to get over that guilt. Looking to yourself, looking back at your past, thinking of all that you've done. Stop, 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 stop. You have got to look to Jesus. You have got to look at the blood that was shed so that all of your sins, not just that one, all of your sins could be fully and completely atoned for and you can be righteous in the sight of God because of the blood of Jesus. And we have compassion for you. We really do. At the same time, we must call it what it is. And it is an evil that we must be standing up against and preaching against in our culture. Next, we see you shall not commit adultery. That's really straightforward. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house and neighbor's goods, neighbor's wife. We see here greed as well in the end of it all, this constant lust for more. Brothers and sisters, it is the job of God's people to proclaim these truths. And when the government is guilty, we have a responsibility to preach against the government as well. In other words, the government does not get a free pass because it's the government. What's happened is, as people have said, well, the church should be in politics. The church shouldn't be in politics. The church shouldn't be in politics. Believe it or not, I agree to that to a degree. It's not the job of the church to decide how much we should be taxed in order to pay for the roads and how often they should stripe them. That's just my opinion. And I'm fine if you disagree with me about it. Trust me, that's one of the mice I'm not willing to go after and fight. But when we start talking about sin... When we start talking about wickedness, it is the job of the church to cry out against it, period. Brothers and sisters, if it's not for the crying out of the church and the preaching of the gospel and the proclaiming of the Bible, this world, it's, it's impossible to fully comprehend the wickedness that would be upon the world if it weren't for us holding it back to what degree we can. 
And there will come a day when God pulls this church out of here, pulls his people out of here, and you will see just how wicked the world will become that day. But until then, it is our job to be preaching against wickedness. I will tell you, I've already confessed that I've been, I have felt um, a lot of conviction this week about, you know, my preaching in the last several years. And at times, it's, what I've found is that people want to hear, like they want to hear something, and unless you say what they want to hear, they're mad. And you know what's frustrated me about the way the church has dealt with what we will call politics and the government? Is that from Joplin's perspective, the church is real willing, real quick to call out all the Democrats, which by the way, I think most of what they do is wicked. I look at, my goodness, the the the... the a lot of what their elected officials have done. I look at what I personally believe uh, about the Clintons and Jeffrey Epstein and sexual perversion and what I believe about all that, and it's like my heart is broken. But you know what I've watched? I've watched the church be like, yeah, Democrats are bad. Republicans are a bunch of Christians. That's who we vote for. And it's driven me nuts. It's just driven me nuts. I mean, I've heard audio of President Trump sexualizing females in a way that I would never let anybody like that get within 100 feet of my daughters. I know, this made a bunch of people mad. You thought he was the Messiah. He's not. (laughs) See what I'm talking about? It's real easy to do big amen when you preach against Clinton. But you got old President Trump who is a salesman of salesmen, he'll say whatever he wanted wanted us to hear. By the way, I did like a lot of his policies. I'm just making the the point that, that we tend to stick our head in the sand when it comes to sin and wickedness. Guy uses the F word about every third sentence. And we all want to say, he is the great Christian. No. I'm telling you, this guy right here, I don't believe... I do not believe President Trump is a Christian. I know that he said he is. I know that he got saved with James Dobson three weeks before it was time to vote. I know. Amazing timing. God would save him three weeks before he needed your vote. Awesome. But there has to be fruit that follows. And here's what's happened with me. I've found myself super frustrated because the church wants to stick its head in the sand and we will look the other way on certain wickedness if it comes from our party. And then you want to scream from the rooftops on the other. And it's just, I mean, it has made my blood boil over the years. We have a responsibility to call sin, sin. I know I just made a bunch of people mad. That's fine. Full disclosure, I voted for Trump. I think he was a way better option than Biden. But I do not think the man's a Christian. I think that he lied to us as people to make us, you know, to get the Christian vote. That's what Joplin thinks. I know. the end of the day, our role in politics, brothers and sisters, is to preach against wickedness and to call sin, sin, no matter who does it. And this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. Let me tell you something. Everything I just said applies to me. 
I would hope that someone has enough guts and courage to say the same things about me if I was ever guilty of committing the same sins. This is about a willingness to stand for what is true no matter what. To speak out against sin no matter what. We are the keepers of the floodgates, brothers and sisters. Number two, not only are we to be preaching against the wickedness of our culture, we are to be living selflessly to serve others in distress. Back to Luke, look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, and when I, come, you, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who, you show, who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I find it interesting that the progression, as we're looking at the mission of Christ here and the mission of the church, the first thing we really see is in, when you look at Luke's, the way he laid it out, you've got the strong preaching that we've already dealt with in the first 10 chapters And now we transition to the teaching on how we should treat each other. And Jesus says through this lesson that we are to live selflessly to serve others in distress. Now here's what's awesome about living for others. As I have already dealt with, the full message of the gospel is harsh. But when you love people and serve people, it opens up the heart to receive the straightness of the message. This is why people were confused with Jesus. I mean, on one hand, Jesus is healing people. Man, he's doing miracles. He's helping people. He's curing them of diseases they've had all their life. Jesus is doing awesome things. He's feeding the multitudes. But then on the other hand, you hear the guy preach, and he is absolutely commanding that they repent and turn from their wickedness. This is why there was that disconnect on that day for me. What, what I saw, when I saw these people, there was no love. There was no compassion. And it's like, not only did it turn me off, I just knew it's immediately going to turn off these others. 
We have to be living selflessly to meet the needs of others in their time of distress. You want to know what your mission is so that you don't get distracted. You need to play a role. You need to play a role in the body of Christ in helping proclaim the message of the gospel, including holding back the wickedness of our culture. And number two, you need to be living selflessly to help others. Something else that honestly we here in America at times we don't do a good job of. We give out of our abundance, but we don't actually give anything that causes sacrifice. We're willing to give it as long as it doesn't actually cost me anything. We see here the good Samaritan, he goes above and beyond. It's not just about meeting the need, it's like he follows up. I'm going to go from start to finish, everything I can to help me, and I even know this guy. I'm walking down the road, boom, this guy is hurt and wounded. I don't know who you are, but man, I'm going to help make sure that in your time of distress, I'm going to serve you, and I'm not just going to, you know, I'm not just going to bandage you up. I'm going to bandage you up. I'm going to put you on my horse. I'm going to take you to the inn. I'm going to make sure they feed you. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to let the innkeeper know that I've got to go, but anything that he needs to give to you, that he can give it to you, I'll come back and pay for it later. Like complete care. And here's what Jesus says. You, you need to go and do likewise. And you will find that when we are truly serving people and we are living selflessly and we are living with that type of heartbeat, you will find that our message is more received. Finally, Here's the third uh, objective of our mission. It's real simple, brothers and sisters, saving sinners from hell. Turn to Luke 15, verse 17, or excuse me, verse 7. Here's what Jesus says. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus gives three parables in Luke 15. First, the parable of the sheep. He says, when that shepherd finds the sheep, that shepherd is so thankful, he rejoices that he found his sheep. He says, this is what it's like in heaven. There's more rejoicing over one person that gets saved than 99 people who are already saved. He gives the same uh, kind of analogy with a coin, woman who loses a very valuable coin. He says, when she finds it, she calls all of her friends because she wants to have a party and like, she's excited she found her coin. Same thing. That's what it's like in heaven. And then he gives the story of the prodigal son that, who was lost. And when he started to come home, the father runs to him and hugs him and kisses him on the cheek and kills the fatted calf and puts on the best robe and puts on the ring. He's, Jesus says, this is what it's all about. And then in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus makes this very simple statement. It's one of the most precise statements about why he came. Luke 19 verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, that is a really precise statement. The Son of Man is a term for Jesus. It's a term that referred to him. Jesus said, the reason I came is to seek and save the lost. This was why he came. It explains to us the purpose behind it. Brothers and sisters, ultimately, this is what we're after, is winning the lost. Ultimately, that's what it's after. And as our worship team gets in place this morning, I want to ask a question. I want you to think of it this way. Right? We all have a mission. The church has a general mission to be preaching against the wickedness of the culture. 
to be living selflessly to serve others, and to be saving sinners from hell. That is our three big objectives. Now, I want to ask you this. Is what you're engaged in furthering those objectives? Let me ask it this way. I know we don't know when Jesus is going to return. But let's just say that it's a year from now. What does it matter if we do a bunch of work and we chase a bunch of mice and we, we have a bunch of small victories, but over the course of the next year, not one single person gets saved from the World Worship Center, like us. I'm talking about us. I'm not talking theoretically the rest of the world. I'm talking about us right here, you and me, us. What if we don't win anybody to the Lord Jesus Christ? What if nobody is saved in the next year? Will what we have done over the course of the next year really mattered much? No. It won't. It won't matter much. I personally believe it might be accurate to say it won't matter at all. I mean, if heaven's not going to be changed, if there's not a single human being that's going to go with us there in everything that we do over the course of the next year, then it doesn't actually matter. We've done nothing for God. Can you see how our enemy would want us to get focused on a bunch of tiny, meaningless things and spend all of our effort and all of our thought process and go to bed thinking about it and go to more and wake up stressing out about all these little things that are not going to save anybody? He says, I came to seek. You know what? We've got to go after the lost. We can't just expect him to show up here on Sunday morning and be saved. I hope that somebody here does get saved today. I hope that we're inviting the lost. But man, he came to seek them. Think about you when you needed to be saved. You didn't just like, poof, stumble into church. I mean, God was seeking you. He was working on you. He put people in your life to witness to you and to invite you to church and to share the word of God with you and to serve you in your time of need. They were there. Who needs you to be there? We've got to be seeking. And we've got to be warning people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. You can't just be forgiven. You've got to repent. You've got to turn from your wicked deeds. Flee from the wrath to come. Listen, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, you are not following him with your life, you need to flee from the wrath to come. There is a real hell. It is an eternal place. Once you're there, you never get out. And this morning, if that's you, you need to be saved. You need to make a decision this very morning to turn from your wicked living, turn from your thieving, turn from your stealing, turn from your conniving, turn from your lusting, turn from your sinning, and turn to Jesus Christ this morning. Confess your sins to God, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and turn and follow him with your life. We've got to be seeking the lost. We got to be proclaiming, and when I say proclaiming, like I mean to the crowds, brothers and sisters, and we, we need the Holy Spirit to lead us and teach us when to open our mouth and when to speak. 
But this whole preaching against wickedness, it's not like in our own little caves. It's not like, you know, in your own home, we all agree this is wrong, but I'm going to walk out in the world and I'm never going to say anything about it. What are we doing with our ministries to win the lost? I want to challenge this morning our people. I'm going to give you a two-minute challenge and I'm done. I want to challenge our people and I want to challenge my leadership. Here's what I want to challenge you people to do. I want to challenge you as God's people to start being much more conscious about how can you win the lost. How can you reach the lost people in your world? What are some of the things you can change in your life that will help you be a better fisher of men? And then I want to challenge our leadership, especially like our, you know, our youth and our children's department. Our pastors, what can we do better to win the lost? Like, what can we do to seek them and not just hope they show up to our events and then hear us speak and then respond? That's one method. We shouldn't abandon it. But we should be more aggressive in what we are doing to go to the lost and seek them and lead them to Jesus. I prayed this at the last service. This is what I prayed. This is what came out of my heart when I knelt and I prayed. I prayed, God, help us to save more people in 2022 than any other year of our ministry. Let 2022 at the Well Worship Center be a year where we see a harvest of souls. Let us be so focused on the mission and trust you with the mission and be willing to say the hard things and be willing to go and seek the lost and be willing to be living selflessly to meet the needs of people in distress that we might save sinners from hell. God, help us in 2022 to win more people than we have ever won in any year of ministry. I wanna challenge you to join me in that heart, in that spirit, in that endeavor.